as you're turning in your Bibles to the book of 2 Samuel, chapter 9. I've got the microphone and I'm going to testify. This morning as I was coming in to church and I was taking Franklin Road, no, Hillsborough Road in. There were two large deer on the road. And as I turned the corner, I could see them. I slowed down. They gathered themselves. They moved. I honked. And they moved off the road. And as I was driving by, the Holy Spirit just kind of lovingly nudged me. And he said, you know that could have turned out differently, don't you? And sometimes you have to thank God for the stuff that didn't happen. And you've got to find your worship moment in moments like that, where I was like, Lord, thank you. Because on December 28th, while my wife and I were celebrating our anniversary, I hit a deer. I hit a deer, but the thing is, I didn't know that I hit it until I saw it spin out on the other side of my car. So we kind of like rolled over it. And the blessing in that is God protected us because it came at us from my wife's side. And, and he protected the deer because homeboy got up, looked at us, and then rolled on off, you know, jumped into the woods. And so... We got to our destination, I checked my car, and I really couldn't, I couldn't see any damage to my car. And, uh, and so we went on, had our date, celebrating our anniversary, and then the next day I could see a little bit better that my grill was a little messed up. So I took my car in to the dealer, and they started working on it, and they gave me a loaner. So the car I'm in right now is a loaner, and I'm sitting there thanking God that I could have hit another deer in the loner. <laughs> but Lord, I want to thank you that the deer I hit, both of us survived. And I want to thank you that I didn't have to deal with two Bambis today on the way to church. They're alive. So just find out. I mean, worship is not that deep, even though it is deep. Just to say thank you, God. Because it's so easy to complain about what we don't have what we think God didn't do. But as Sydney said today, the blessing is that we're here. Had a friend of mine from Baltimore send me a message and said, this morning you opened up two gifts, your eyes, you know, for those of us who can see, you opened two gifts this morning. So when we start thinking about all the ways that he's been good, all the ways he's provided versus, versus the things we're waiting on him to do, um, it can adjust our spirit, you know? And, and with our mouths, we can say, thank you, Lord. And even this morning, you know, one of our core values at Strong Tower is flexibility. And we've had to be flexible for the past two years working through this virus, continuing to worship God and in many respects offering a sacrifice of praise. Well, about 11 o'clock last night, our worship leader, Dr. Jewell, got a message from Mike Hicks, who helps us with worship, that his brother Kyle had to take his son to the emergency room. Kyle often plays drums for us on Sunday and I uh, had to take him to the emergency room. 
And uh, Kyle himself is just coming off of COVID and he was supposed to be here playing drums this morning, but he couldn't come because he had to do what he had to do as a father and to oversee his house. So we want to be in prayer for Kyle's son. Felicia, what is Kyle's son's name? Luke? Okay. So we want to be in prayer for uh, Luke Hicks and others in our body, man. Because um, a lot of us are tired in, in so many ways, of course, mentally and emotionally and relationally, but we're still here. And the Bible says that with the living, there is hope. And hope is a positive expectation of the future. Why? Because you know who holds the future. Uh, we, we have snuck a peek at the end of the book, and we know how this thing turns out. So uh, we, we're going to give God praise anyhow. Yeah. Amen? Yeah. Uh, 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 and then this wonderful instrument behind me Hallelujah. is called a B3 organ. And we're not renting it. It's ours. Amen. Amen. Uh, uh, our worship department, Lasagna, Jewel, all of you guys, thank you so much for what you do to make sure that we um, have the best musicians playing, not only just very good artistically, but these men and women love Jesus. And we're just so fortunate because even in Music City, it's not always like this in a lot of churches. But you didn't even notice that we made it this morning without percussion as um, they put together some drum loops and a man, Chris, was playing on the guitar. I mean, this is what we do. We're flexible because if we have to, we'll worship God Acapulco up in here. Ain't that right? We'll worship him Acapulco. We'll, we'll get some spoons if we got to. We'll, whatever we got to do because ain't no rock going to cry in my place. Ain't no tree going to lift its branches. As long as I'm alive, I'm going to glorify his holy name. And I want to honor you for hanging in there for, for two years um, without things being normal. And you're bringing your children to church. And because we're a family, you may see all these lights and cameras, but, but we are not a production. We're a family. Crying babies do not bother me. That's an extra amen for your pastor. And if you keep on playing, again, we're we going to learn this B3 because within the culture of the black church, which many of us came out of, the, the B3 organ was instrumental in worship. Those chords are very powerful. And I was telling uh, Tyrus this morning that in the Bible, the prophet Elisha had a word to give. And he says, I can't give the word until you bring me a musician. And as the musician played, the prophet began to prophesy. There's something powerful when we worship God in spirit and in truth, in worship uh, with music and in worship with the word, that, that when they combine. Um, you may notice that um, Tyrus will stay here until I finish praying. He'll play underneath. And that music even helps lead me as I'm praying. So, so there's something powerful about the music and the preaching of the word. So we're asking that with this new instrument, God will take us into a new season of uh, worship, a new season of the word, prophetic word, and just that all of God's people will leave out of here better than how they came in because we're in his presence today. So let's pray together, family. Tyrus, you ready, man? You got me, man? All right, brother. Amen. Mm, Jesus. One of my deaconesses, Lord, said that it took her back to church when she grew up. 
to hear this instrument this morning took her back. And Lord, some of us have that testimony that we can go back to church and it wasn't a bad thing. Even though the church, just like the church today is flawed, Lord, had it not been for Zion and the blessings we received from Zion, we would not be where we are today. We thank you for tradition. All tradition is not bad. We thank you, God, for what we've learned from our ancestors. We thank you, Lord, for how we can quote them and say that you're the God who can make a way out of no way. You know how to pick us up, turn us around, and place our feet on solid ground. We thank you for where we've come from, but above all, we thank you for where we are going in Christ. Oh God, we trust you. We lean on you. And even when our faith is struggling, we say, Lord, help our unbelief. But while we're saying that, we're in your presence. We're talking to you, the living word. Lord, help our unbelief. I pray, Lord, that through the preaching and teaching of the word today, your people would be strengthened and edified today. That we might leave this place, go out and make differences as your disciples. Go out and love the lost, the last, and the least in society. That we will be your mouth, your hands, and your feet that, Father, we would be your representatives, your ambassadors, that we would walk in the authority that you've given us. So thank you, Lord, for truth today. Let God be true in every man and every devil a liar. Lord, help us to focus in for a few minutes now that as the seed is sprinkled, it might hit a heart that has soil that is fertile so that fruit change might come as a result of the word of God. Start first and foremost with me, Lord, because I need this word and I thank you for it. In Jesus' name and for his sake and all of God's people said, amen. Amen. I'll begin reading at verse 1 of 2 Samuel chapter 9. And the Bible says, now David said, is there still anyone who is left of the house of Saul? that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake. And there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba. So when they had called him to David, the king said to him, Are you Ziba? He said, At your service. Then the king said, Is there not still someone of the house of Saul to whom I may show the kindness of God? And Ziba said to the king, there is still a son of Jonathan who is lame in his feet. So the king said to him, where is he? And Ziba said to the king, indeed, he is in the house of Maker, the son of Amiel in Lodabar. Then King David sent and brought him out of the house of Maker, the son of Amiel from Lodabar. Now when Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, had come to David, he fell on his face and prostrated himself. Then David said, Mephibosheth, and he answered, here is your servant. So David said to him, do not fear, for I will surely show you kindness for Jonathan, your father's sake, and will restore to you all the land of Saul, your grandfather, and you shall eat bread at my table continually. Well, with your prayers and, of course, with the aid of the Holy Spirit, let's talk today on the subject of grace that is greater. Grace that is greater. 
In our text today, the word kindness appears three times. And it is the Hebrew word chesed. I tried to pronounce it like I was Hebrew. Chesed. Uh, I know it's wrong. If you're Jewish, forgive me. I'm trying to honor your people and your culture and your language. We normally say as Americans, chesed is this word kindness that you see in verse 1. You see it in verse 3. You also see it in verse 7. Kindness, 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 chesed or chesed. And this is a word that shows us a little bit about the nature and the character of God. Chesed is a multifaceted word. It is a word that is multicolored, multilayered. It is a word that can also mean mercy, this word chesed. It not only means kindness and mercy, but it means favor. It means what we would call grace. It means love. It means pity, compassion. It means covenant love. It means loving kindness. This word chesed here. This is a word that stoops down. This is a word that lavishes love upon the one being loved. I think I'm saying it too fast, so let me go back and say it again. It's a multifaceted word that speaks of mercy and favor and grace and love and loving kindness and pity and compassion. It is a love that stoops down. It is a love that lavishes. It is a kindness that dispenses and displays random, unsuspecting acts of goodness to the undeserved. This word is power-packed. And our English really can't pick it up, which is why you will see this Hebrew word translated multiple ways in the English with words like mercy, love, favor, grace, and kindness. But I want you to see that it dispenses and displays random, unsuspecting acts of goodness to people who don't deserve it. We're just learning about the character of our God through this word. And the New Testament equivalent of chesed is charis, which is where we get the word grace. And we know grace as Christians, that it is unmerited, unearned favor from God. If we were to take a written test today, we could fill that in. We would pass the test because we know the definition of charis, the definition of grace. But I learned early on in my walk with God, there's a difference between knowing a word and knowing a word. <laughs> Coming out of seminary and even Bible school, I knew what grace was theologically. I knew even what it was about theoretically. But I didn't know what grace was personally and practically. I was a self-righteous Pharisee. I'm still recovering from that. And the thing that a Pharisee needs the most is the thing that offends him the most, and that is grace. Because sometimes we think it's up to us, we think it's about us, we think we can do it, but grace is just a reminder that you can't earn anything from God. I know we think we can, but we can only receive this goodness that is lavished on us simply because he's good and not because we are. 
So that's why there's no other word for grace but amazing. <laughs> that's how it ought to be. And so in this passage, we're talking about kindness, which means we're talking about the grace of God and the love of God, the compassion of God, the mercy of God. And Mephibosheth today, his life was changed in one day because of kindness. Oh, oh please put that into your mental computer today. Store it on your hard drive. That in one day, the kindness of God pulled an Ephesians 3.20 on it. <laughs> Did exceedingly, abundantly, above anything he could ever ask or imagine. In one day, his life was turned around because of grace, because of kindness that came from a man named David that we'll talk about. But ultimately, it came through David from God to bless a crippled man named Mephibosheth. One day, his life turned around. And I need to stop by here and let you know in these cold COVID streets that we focus on how hard things are, and understandably so, and how difficult things are and how tired we are of this season. And, and it's led to some discouragement, even depression, both real as far as uh, 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 chemically or, or diagnosed from a uh, therapist or a kind of spiritual depression that goes on that we all face. And we're tired of these days. And we're ready for these days to end. And sometimes we think these days are so gloomy that as soon as we think we over one uh, Omarosa, here comes another one coming. And you're like, man, we, we had plans. We, we had things we wanted to do. And so the temptation is to think that God does not care. God is not there. And every day is just bad. Every day is just hard. But I, I pray that there'll be a glimmer of hope and light that will break through today to let you know that he's still the God who can do something exponential in your life for the good in one day. I almost said one daggone day, but I held my tongue. He can do it. All oh, my cussers said, Pastor, you should. But, but one day <laughs> is all God needs to remind you that he's still a God who is rich in mercy and full of grace. One moment in a day, and really, as Sidney said, we have them if we open up our eyes and see them. That it's not always the big stuff, but it's the stuff we take for granted every day, like breathing and, and all of that. Even though we may breathe with some respiratory challenges, we're still breathing. And let everything that has some breath up in you praise the Lord, because it could be a little worse than what it is. And so in one day, one day, one day, God turned around, because we like to look at Job and how Job, man, one day, he kept getting bad news after bad news after bad news, his children dying, he losing all of his money, and, and then his flesh is hit one day. And so we talk about that, but, but how many times do we talk about the one day when God turned it around? What are we going to emphasize today? Well, well let's look at Mephibosheth because one day the kindness of God rocked this man's world. The first thing I want you to see in verse 1 
is the mission of David. The mission of David. Verse 1, now David said, is there still anyone who is left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? So David stands up and he says, man, is there anybody out there from Saul's house that I can bless? You see, here we find David in chapter 9. He has become the king of Israel. Saul has been killed on the battlefield. The throne is David's now. And every enemy that rose up against him, he was able to defeat because God was with him. And even as the Jebusites held Jerusalem, David was able to conquer the Jebusites and acquire Jerusalem to make it the city of David. So he's prospering on every hand. Chapter 8 talks about all of these victories that he's experiencing because he was anointed as a teenager, but now as a 30-year-old man, he is seeing the anointing that God put on his life through Samuel come to fruition. He is the king of Israel. And he wakes up one day after having been established. And he says, is there anyone still from the house of Saul who was my enemy? I didn't have a problem with him. He had a problem with me. But I want to bless his lineage because I made a covenant with his son, Jonathan, who was my best friend. And earlier in the book of 1 Samuel, the two of them got together because Jonathan said, man, I know you're going to be king. Uh, Because, you know, Jonathan was in the lineage to become the next king because his daddy was king. But Jonathan said, look, man, it's not about birthright. It's about the hand of God. I see the hand of God on you. And when you become king, please be kind to me and to my family. They made a covenant, which was a binding agreement in the sight of God. And so not only when we come to chapter 9 is Saul dead, but Jonathan is dead. And so David says, is there anybody I can show kindness to for Jonathan's sake from Saul's family? Because David is a man who wants to keep his word. David is a man that he knows he's only where he is because of the grace of God. And he, because he has power, now wants to show the grace of God to someone else in need. And so David says, is there anyone left from the house of Saul? Now, if a flawed man, yes, he's a man after God's own heart, but he's a flawed man. If a flawed man can one day wake up saying, I just want to love on somebody from my enemy's family. What can God do? (laughs) Or what does God do? He's not flawed at all. We're flawed. And his eyes go to and fro over the earth, the Bible says, looking for whom he may bless. And he says, who can I bless today from the house of the enemy who who came out of that house? Now they're in my house. Who can I bless today? That's God. And it's a random act of kindness, uh, unbeknownst to the one being blessed, because while David is talking about this in the throne room, Mephibosheth has no idea in Lodabar that his name is going to come up in David's throne room. Because that's how God operates, that that, that, that your name is mentioned in places that your feet have never been in. Because God is saying, I want to bless my child. And when God determines he's going to bless you, can't nobody stop it. I'm going to show you a hater in the text in a minute. He's going to try to stop this. 
But when God says, I want to show kindness just because, can't nobody stop it. Now, now, I am wearing a shirt today, and it has an animal on the front. An animal, some kind of bear. And this dude is named Kissy Fur. Kissy Fur. I got this shirt as a gift last week. Came in the mail. Came in the mail, and, and, and it said Christopher Williamson on it. And I felt the package, and it felt like a shirt. And my son is living with us right now before he gets married. And he gets a lot of stuff coming from Amazon. He likes to order vintage shirts. So his name is Chris. My name is Chris. So I assumed it was his because I hadn't ordered a shirt. So I put it in his room. And then I come home one day, and the package is open on my bed with the shirt Kissy Fur hanging out of it. Because it wasn't for my son. It was for me. So I'm sitting there saying, now, I didn't order no shirt that said Kissy Fur. My name is Christopher, but I didn't order no shirt that said Kissy Fur. I'll tell you that right now. And I start thinking, who in the world would just send me a gift like this and not tell me? And I said, oh, only two people in the world would dare call me Kissy Fur. Those are my two sisters, Kathy and Cindy in Baltimore. So I texted them. I said, did y'all send me a shirt that says kissy fur? And they sent me all these love emojis and all this stuff, love emojis. And I thanked them for it. But that was a lesson in that gift. The lesson is my sisters were thinking of me. They were thinking of me. And they just wanted to bless me just because they love me. And if my sisters can do that in Baltimore, <laughs> what can God do for you? Just because he loves you, he will lavish on you. So the mission of David was, I want to bless somebody. I want to show kindness, covenant faithfulness to a descendant of Saul because of the agreement I made with Jonathan. And now in verse 2, we're going to see the misery of Mephibosheth. Verse 2, and there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba. So when they had called him to David, the king said to him, are you Ziba? He said, at your service. Then the king said, is there not still someone of the house of Saul to whom I may show the kesset of God? So he's asking someone who ought to know because he used to serve King Saul. And now he is a steward over some of Saul's land in David's kingdom. So David calls the right man in to say, I know you know somebody. Is there somebody out there that I can bless? And Ziba said to the king, there is still a son of Jonathan who is lame in his feet. He said, that's somebody. That's the son of Jonathan. He's lame in his feet. And what we see here is that Zeba, 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 Zeba is a hater. I'm, I'm letting you know now he's a hater. Why? He knew the name of Mephibosheth. But when he answered the king, he didn't give the king Mephibosheth's name. Instead, he gave the king Mephibosheth's condition. Homeboy is lame in his feet, meaning that 
you don't want nothing to do with him because of his condition. He's crippled. And he's living with somebody in, Lo, in Lodibar, Makir, the son of Amia. Homeboy don't even have his own place. So, so according to Zeba, Mephibosheth is nameless. According to Zeba, Mephibosheth, his condition of being crippled has become his overruling identity. See, a hater wants to find that thing that you have that we all have and highlight it and isolate it and, and make much of it rather than really recognizing your humanity, your value, your purpose, your dignity. They want to take your shortcoming, your failure, and they want to exalt that and illuminate that as opposed to saying what your name is. And the reason why this man is crippled or lame in his feet is because according to chapter 4 of 2 Samuel, when the bad news had come into Jonathan's house, that Saul and Jonathan had died on the battlefield fighting the Philistines and Saul had his head cut off. And when the bad news got to the house, the nurse in the house picked up five-year-old Mephibosheth and tried to run thinking that more danger was coming against the house. And when the nurse grabbed the five-year-old, the Bible says she dropped him. When she dropped him, she dropped him in such a way that his spine was injured and he became lame in his feet. So here's a young man on this day, on that day that he finds out that his grandpa and his dad have died is the same day he has an accident in the house and he is now lame for the rest of his life. Bad news came on Mephibosheth. And Mephibosheth is crippled, can't walk because somebody else dropped him. And there have been times in our lives where the people who were to care for us dropped us. They hurt us. They inflicted damage on us mentally, verbally, maybe even sexually. They dropped us. And we have been, maybe not lame, but we've been really walking with a limp because of what happened to us in our childhood. But I'm here to say all God needs is one day. One day to remind you that your affliction is not your identity. One day to remind you that your past is your past. It has nothing to do with your present and your future as far as God is concerned. It's not going to hold you bound. All he needs is one day to get a hold of you by his kindness. And so Zeba is there, and he's saying that this boy lives in Lodabar. Lodabar, what is Lodabar? It literally means no pasture. That means they're not growing crops in Lodabar. Maybe it's something wrong with the soil in Lodabar. So if there's no pasture, that means that there is no fruit. And if there's no fruit, that means there's very little commerce there, very little money there. And so one commentator described Lodabar as a ghetto. I almost took offense when he said that, but a ghetto. Because it can also be translated as a place says of, of no communication. It's just a spot nobody wants to go to, yet alone come from, kind of like Nazareth where Jesus was raised. Can anything good come out of that place? So again, Zeba is putting limitations on Mephibosheth to David when he heard that David wants to show kindness to someone 
from the house of Saul. Another thing verse 12 is going to show us about Mephibosheth is that he's a single parent, that he has a son named Micah. So here is a single parent, crippled man, living in Lodabar with a dude named Maker. He's powerless. He's powerless. But little did he know that the king, the most powerful man on the face of the earth at that time, at least in that region, had Mephibosheth on his mind. Oh, let's keep on going. Let's look at the mercy of David in verse 5. Then King David sent and brought him out of the house of Maker, the son of Amiel, from Lodibar. Let, 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 let's take a look at that first because there's a transition that's happening now. Uh, Mephibosheth had no idea that when he was going to wake up that day, he thought it was going to just be another bad day, another bad day, another bad day, another bad day that came from bad news about his father dying and his grandfather dying that led to him being crippled. Another bad day, another bad day, but oh, on this day, King David. Now, now, now this is the first time we're going to see king attached to David. Everywhere else, he's just called David. But now king, speaking of his authority, King David sent and brought him out. Notice he didn't ask Ziba for Ziba's opinion. Notice he didn't ask Ziba for wisdom or what should I do. No, the king's heart moved as soon as he heard somebody was alive from the house of Saul. He sent and brought him out. He brought him out to bring him in. <laughs> He brought him out of Lodabar, no fruit, no pasture, no communication, no commerce to bring him into Jerusalem, the city of peace. My God. Uh-oh, here it comes, here it comes, he, to bring him out. Verse 6, now when Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, had come to David, he fell on his face and prostrated himself. Stop, stop, stop. So how did David get a crippled man? from Lodabar into Jerusalem. He sent an escort. He sent an entourage. He, he sent a limousine service. And I bet you he's, Mephibosheth, he's like, what is going to, why all these horses and chariots outside Maker's house, who they're here for? They're here for you. Can you imagine? I bet you he's saying, this is too good to be true. What do they want from me? Maybe, maybe, maybe David wants to take me out because I'm a grandson of Saul. So he's got mixed emotions. He doesn't know what's going on. He's afraid because David is going to speak to that in a minute. But what I want you to see is that David brought him out to bring him in. And when Mephibosheth comes, he falls on his face. He prostrates himself. He humbles himself. He's a crippled man who goes even lower. Then David said, Mephibosheth? He calls his name. He calls his name. The king of Israel calls the name of a crippled man. The king of Israel must have done some work to find out the man's name because Ziba wasn't trying to give it. So David knew his name. 
when Mephibosheth came into the king's presence. So you see the correlation, don't you? He knows your name. Israel Houghton sings it, but before he sang it, the Bible said it. He knows your name. He's an intimate God. He's a personal God. And then the mercy of God continues to show up because David says in verse 7, do not fear. I know you're afraid. I know you're blown away with the presentation and everything you're seeing coming from where you come from. But do not be afraid because that's what love does. Perfect love does something to fear. What does it do? Cast it out. So God's love, which is perfect, casts out fear. Don't be afraid in the presence of King Jesus with your crippled self. Don't be afraid. He wants you there. <laughs> Woo! He loves you. He knows your name. And then David begins to proclaim with Mephibosheth there, Mephibosheth on his face. And David says, for I will surely show kindness for Jonathan, your father's sake, and will restore to you all the land of Saul, your grandfather, and you shall eat bread at my table continually. This man's hearing some good news. That's unbelievable news. Face down, prostrate, and he's hearing the king who when the king says something, his word is bond. That when he says something, it must come to pass. And he is washing Zeba with this word of kindness and grace. Mephibosheth didn't expect any of this on this day. Now we go to the mindset of Mephibosheth. Look at verse 8. Now, David has just pronounced and announced all these blessings over him. Then he bowed himself and said, what is your servant that you should look upon such a dead dog as I? Okay, let, let, let's park here parenthetically for a second. Insert yourself in this story. If you won't, I will. Because so often, when I'm in the presence of the king, I feel like Mephibosheth. When I'm in the presence of the king of kings, I tend to focus more on my flaws and my failures than upon his faithfulness and favor in my life. God has called me a child of his. You see, when David said, you're going to sit at my table like one of the king's sons, he was literally adopting him. Taking him from the place of disgrace to sit him at the king's table like a son. We call it sonship in the kingdom. Where we've been adopted and brought in only because of grace, not because of works. And God seats us at the table. Well, let me, let me say it this way. The Father seats us at the table with his son, Jesus Christ, because we are co-heirs, joint heirs with Jesus. John 17, 23, Jesus says that I, the, the Father will love you even as he has loved me. You don't deserve it. I don't deserve it. All we can do is receive it and walk in it. Not arrogantly, but humbly and confidently. 
Because I hate to see people who, who get self-righteous in God's imputed righteousness and act like that stuff don't stink. Come on now, don't, don't do that. But he's been told about his new position. And the first thing he says is that I'm a dead dog. Sometimes when I go to God in prayer, I am magnifying my shortcomings. Then crying out for mercy. And God is there. He works with us. He walks with us. He works with me. And God is like, Chris, you must remember I am rich in mercy. And where sin abounds, my grace super abounds. You're coming into the prayer closet too much focused on yourself. Or you're focusing too much on yourself. And you're not focusing enough on me. You're coming into prayer with me talking about what you haven't done right again. Rather than focusing on the God who does all things well. You're making it too much about yourself and not enough about God. Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. Focus on God, which is part of your problem because you love yourself too much. You must decrease, homeboy. And anything you tell him, he already knows. Put this stuff in the right perspective. Stop seeing yourself as a dead dog when you're an adopted son. And live from that position as opposed to someone groveling for grace. The grace you need is the grace you already possess. He's covered you. He's overwhelmed you. He's, over, he's lavished you with mercy and loving kindness. Embrace it. Accept that and move on. Forgive yourself because he's forgiven you. Stop focusing on what you did not do right again. You will never have a perfect day in your life, but you'll never go a day in your life without a perfect love and a perfect savior. And that is what transforms us. Never a law, never rules. It's grace and mercy. Why would you love me? But, but Lord, I'm so glad that you love me. Because as we grow in grace, we will see his faithfulness more than we see our flaws. We will see his favor more than we see our failures. Now, we're going to see him. Because we're broken still. But let's not dwell there. My God. Let me go to this last point here. The ministry of grace. I love this. I love this. I love this. The ministry of grace. So Mephibosheth says in verse 8, he's a dead dog. Why do you even want to look at me, he says. Forget everything David just pronounced over him. Like I said, it takes a minute to believe grace. Verse 9 after Mephibosheth said he's a dead dog, the king called to Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, I have given to your master's son all that belongs to Saul 
and to all his house. You therefore and your sons and your servants shall work the land for him, and you shall bring in the harvest that your master's son may have food to eat. But Mephibosheth, your master's son, shall eat bread at my table always. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. Then Ziba said to the king, accordingly to all that my lord the king has commanded his servant, so will your servant do. As for Mephibosheth, said the king, he shall eat at my table like one of the king's sons. Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah and all who dwelt in the house of Ziba were servants of Mephibosheth. So Mephibosheth dwelt in Jerusalem for he ate continually at the king's table and he was lame in both his feet. Help me, Lord. Why would you even look on a dead dog like me? Look what King David does. He begins to pronounce the blessing over him again, and he sets it in motion by calling Ziba the hater to carry it up. Because later in the book, uh, Ziba's going to try to hurt Mephibosheth when David has to flee Jerusalem. Uh, but, but anyway, anyway, anyway. So David hears Mephibosheth say, I'm a dead dog. And David doesn't even acknowledge that mess that came out of his mouth. I'm a dead dog. Uh, get the blessing ready, uh, take care of this, get the land. It's kind of like what we read in the New Testament with Jesus and the parable of the prodigal son. Father, I have sinned. Oh, go kill the fatty calf, get cool in the gang, ready to start the party. My son who was dead is alive and he's come back. Get the robe, get the fatty calf. That's grace upon grace upon grace. David doesn't even pay attention to the self-condemnation of Mephibosheth. He doesn't even say, man, man stop saying that about yourself. He says, you know what, that's not going to work. What's going to work is an overwhelming outpouring of mercy on your behalf. Y'all take care of him because grace overlooks self-condemnation. Grace never mentions our crippling condition. David never mentions his condition. Grace gives us power and possessions. Because David was giving him land. And when you have land, you have power. Then and now, can I get an amen somebody? And Lodabar broke, but in one day, now he's a landowner. Not only that, now he's got servants. Crippled dude with servants. And it's a bunch of them. Homeboy got a bunch of sons and a bunch of servants. Again, Zeba's jaws are tight. Because he was like, that's supposed to be my land because I've been living here all this time. Since Saul died, I've been taking care of the estate. So, so he was getting comfortable like it was his, but it wasn't his because he wasn't in the proper line of inheritance. But Mephibosheth was, and the king said, I'm going to bless you to keep my word towards you because of the covenant I made with your father, Jonathan. Covenantal kindness. I'm going to bless you. And the father says, I'm going to bless the church because of the covenant that I've made with Jesus Christ. I'm going to bless you because of him. Ain't got nothing to do with you. All you can do is just receive the blessing. I hear it, but man, I really got to believe that because I still think it's up to me somehow. 
to earn this blessing. But Mephibosheth couldn't earn any of this. Grace makes your enemies your footstool. Yes, grace will. The people who were coming against you, God will prepare a table before you in the presence of your enemies as you sit and dine with the king's sons and Zebas in the corner sweeping up some trash. Grace reaffirms the promises of God. We see from verse 7 and verse 10, David is affirming what he said before. Grace looks past our condition under the table and sees our position at the table. Oh, you missed that. You missed that because when he's sitting at the table, he's got Absalom on one side. He's got Solomon on another side. He's got all these other sons around the table and he's sitting at the table. And if you were to come in as a reporter and look at that table, you see all these dashing, handsome young men, princes around the table. And you are not trying to look under the table to see who's crippled under the, you're just looking at their seat at the table, not their feet under the table. Because that's how grace will do. Folk want to come look at your feet. And we just got to tell them, man, you need to look at my seat. You know, I'm seated in heavenly places with Jesus. Has nothing to do with my condition under the table. It's his grace that put me at the table. My God, that's grace. That's adoption. That's sonship. And Mephibosheth didn't have to work to maintain this position of grace. All he had to do was show up. He would get fed a banquet every day, all because one day the king said, I want to show kindness to somebody. I came by today to say that in one day, kindness completely changed this man's life. And if God did that for him, he can do it for you. As a matter of fact, he has done it for you. Open your eyes and see all the ways he's blessed you on this day and on that day. Well, I have so many things I could testify about, but I'm going to take you back to 2008. On November 4th, 2008, Barack Obama was elected as the first African-American president of the United States. And this was history. This was historic This was major. The 44th president, after 43 of them being Anglo men, the 44th was a black man. And he would be inaugurated on January 20th, 2009. Elected in November of 2008, inaugurated on 2009. Well, one day in between there, Darina and I got a call. And the call was, Would you and your wife like to go to this historic inauguration of Barack Obama in Washington, D.C.? We weren't seeking this opportunity, but God knew we wanted to be there. We got a call from a congressman in Pennsylvania, Republican congressman who had children who went to our church at the time, had visited our church, listened to me preach, Loved me, loved my wife, and because he had the power to do so, one day he just thought about us. And he said, would y'all like to come? Because I can get you in. We said, yes. We want to be there for history. 
So we go to Washington, D.C. We don't stay in a hotel. We stay in the home of the congressman. The congressman takes us on personal tours throughout the Capitol and throughout Congress. We're walking around. We're taking pictures. Man, we having a good time. We, we both elbowing each other. Look at us. I took a picture by the bust of Martin Luther King, and my wife is taking pictures by where Abraham Lincoln's seat was in Congress. Man, we're having a good time. We're walking in the private halls where only the, the, the congressmen and women can walk underneath the bill. We're taking those private walks. We're in his office. He's talking to us. And while we're going to, to go to the inauguration, we, we, we leave. And as we're leaving, we see Congressman John Lewis. And me and my wife are like, Lord, you blessing us today. <laughs> Congressman puts us in his car. There's traffic everywhere. But we are riding with the congressman who has an escort, and we're driving by all these lines of people, all these lines of traffic because of who we're rolling with that day. <laughs> then we go, and our seats are on the lawn. I was close enough to see Aretha Franklin's hat that she had on. I mean, man, we were seated right there on the lawn. We were so blessed on that day when he stood there and he took the oath of office. Lost a couple church members over that, but that's all right. Bye-bye. Bye. <laughs> and Doreen and I had a blast. On one day, a man thought about us. Well, that wasn't the end of it because four years later, on November 6, 2012, when Barack Obama was re-elected, the inauguration will be held on January 20th, 2013. In that space of time between that, we got another call. And we went again to Washington. I forgot to tell you about the balls we were invited to that night. Both times. We walked around in ball. My wife got her gown on. I got my tuxedo on. Who let these country folk in here? We got in because we knew somebody who showed some kindness to us. We came away with memorabilia and all that stuff. We'll sell it one day, make a lot of money. But man, <laughs> and if a man can just think of us like that, he was just the vessel through whom God operated his grace. But the best one day for me happened. On June 29th, 1984, I went to a camp looking to meet girls, and they separated the guys from the girls, and I heard the gospel. I heard how much God loves me, how Jesus died in my place, the just for the unjust, and how he was resurrected from the dead. And the preacher gave an invitation to say, anybody want Jesus today? Anybody want to know Jesus today? And on that day, God's kindness, God's kindness found Chris Williamson in the hills of Maryland. And I still haven't gotten over that kindness. So if he doesn't do another thing, he's already what? He's already done enough. Can I get a witness in the house? Put your hands together and give Jesus some praise.